Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. It's okay. How's the sound? Is it okay? So, how are we doing? Survive some speech? Wasn't that bad. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, hmm. Pretty soon, you're going to be going back into... Some people say, I'll go back into the real world, but actually, hmm, one could flip it around. <laughs> this is the real world, and... Everything else is just kind of the stories that we're living in our mind. Yes? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to stay awake on me, right? That's the hard part about getting warm. <clears throat> so going back into the busy life. I want to start out with a contemporary prayer that you might keep in mind. Dear God, so far today I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent, and I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And then I'm probably going to need a lot more help. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) We can have all kinds of ideas about now that we've touched that place of depth and purity and silence and wisdom and love, how everything's going to just be a piece of cake. You probably don't have that idea, but you might have that hope. Oh, maybe now. And it's hard out there. It's really hard. It's not to say it's impossible. It's the next part of the retreat. What we usually say is the as long as you've been sitting, the next period of time is the second half of your retreat, the re-entry. And how you do it, if you can do it with that same spirit of kindness and interest and non-judging and just continually learning, uh, then there is no mistakes. It's a, it's a continual exploration in waking up. But it's hard, and I wanted to read one more thing to begin to just show you also um, what we're up against. This is from uh, uh, my favorite writer who writes every week, every Tuesday. You can uh, read his piece um, online. His name is Mark Morford, and you go to uh, SFGate, or you just put in Mark Morford blog. Um, Anybody read Mark Porford here? Okay. 
One person? Oh, well, you know, you know me. So this is from his essay, um, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. (laughs) (laughs) Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, Why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise, but hey, What else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in the year 2010, said a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read this study. So in 48 hours in 2010, the same amount of data up until 2005. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn (laughs) as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) 
how easily we forget. Time expands and time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. <laughs> you can just Google, hurry up, get more done, and die. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll put it up. Yeah. I get the shivers every time I read that. This is what we're up against. The Buddha was talking about getting caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion 25, 2600 years ago. And now we are faced with a whole other level of stimulation and grasping where madmen take consumption to an art level and feeding desires to a science. So I wanted to talk tonight in this theme about connecting heart and mind to coming back to yourself and staying connected as best we can with the goodness and the aliveness and the joy that's right inside. I want to talk a bit about how I see the, the Dharma and practice as a path of true happiness. What I have written about in uh, the book that, that I wrote, Awakening Joy, and teaching a, a course that, uh, that people take as well. First of all, it's important to, to recognize this path is a path of happiness. Sometimes people really get into Dharma practice and are so um, inspired um, and think of it as, oh, I can maybe work with my suffering, which is a, a very profound thing to do. The Buddha said he taught about suffering and the end of suffering. But sometimes people don't realize that this is about happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. Not just the non-suffering one. <laughs> when I first got into this practice, uh, I think I mentioned the, uh, the other day, I, I was in a lot of suffering. It, it really um, brought me to the practice and uh, I was so grateful and excited when I heard the teachings. You know, when I heard Joseph Goldstein say, it's really possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. I'd never entertained that as a possibility before, but there was something in the way he said it that I really believed him. And I just went for it. 
and I had what uh, is sometimes called a long honeymoon period where I was a believer and I told anybody who'd hear, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. You know, so my friends would kind of slink away from me. Okay, a little space for this guy because uh, I was such a proselytizer. Um, and I had that period. I did a lot of retreats the first really 10 years of practice. At some point in my practice, I became really serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. (laughs) Emphasis on the dead. And I lost my joy. And there was something in me that I... um, I somehow internalized some teachings that could be easily misconstrued to um, give one the idea that it's not okay to love life or to be happy. The Dalai Lama in his, his beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, it's a wonderful book. It starts out with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just take that one in. The purpose of life is to be happy. That's how he starts the book. You might think, gosh, that's kind of self-indulgent. But actually, when you think about it, and when I have reflected deeply on it, if we can find our own true source of happiness inside, our own genuine well-being, then everyone gets the goodness that's inside. Everyone benefits from you accessing and sharing your happiness and joy. I'm not alone in this misconception. I want to read to you a passage I don't think I read this from uh, Ajahn Sumedho, the same guy who I read about the, the three-hour talks. The, the, really, the, the, the main elder in Theravadan Buddhism. He says, uh, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, that's the, the, the tradition, the earliest teachings of the Buddha, the way of the elders. Tara means elder. Theravada, the way of the elders, the oldest teachings. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. 
They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in the beauty and the goodness and truth of things. But once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things because truth and beauty and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. If I can find this, the Buddha himself, his words. Here it is. Live in joy. This is the Timus Byram Dhammapada. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So when I got into this space of losing my joy, my aliveness, um, and it was a chunk of time, um, when I woke up from the trance, I wanted to take a look and see well, what did the Buddha actually say about happiness? He was called the happy one. What did he say about happiness besides the happiness that comes from meditation and deep states of concentration, which he highly uh, recommended the, the peace that can come from a still mind and also the peace that can come from the, a free mind. There's no higher happiness than peace, he said. But he also said that if you go for the highest happiness, there are many other happinesses that you can experience along the way. And this is a good thing. He didn't say, just go for the meditation experience. He was talking about true well-being. And as I looked, it was fortunate I didn't turn my back on the Dharma. Um, I wanted to take a look and uh, with fresh eyes. And there uh, I found some beautiful teachings that inspired me and that I saw perhaps if there was just a little bit of a, of a different spin and packaging, uh, these teachings could be applied. And that's what got me to, to write and, and teach this course on, on joy. Because the, the word suffering, you know, there's four noble truths. There's the truth of suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and then there's a path leading to the end to suffering. That's a lot of suffering. And you might not realize, oh, he's talking about real happiness. And there's beautiful teachings. So there were three particular teachings that, that touched me that I wanted to share with you and then a little bit about how they can be applied in one's life, both with the mind and the heart. So the first teaching is the teaching on wise effort. One of the eight links in the 
in the eight noble, uh, eightfold noble path, wise effort. And literally, wise effort, there are four components of wise effort, two having to do with unwholesome states and two having to do with wholesome states. The two with unwholesome states, unwholesome states, by the way, uh, the word is akusala. Unwholesome states are states of, of um, suffering that lead to more suffering, unpleasant things like greed, hatred, delusion, fear, jealousy, um, uh, wanting, envy. Um, you know those, right? Mm. They don't feel good, right? And they're very contracting. The mind gets tight. The body gets tight. We get caught in in uh, confusion. And he said, guard against those states when you can, guard against them from arising. So don't put yourself in temptation's way, for instance. You know, if you're on a diet, you don't want to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, might be the, the prime example, okay? Don't put yourself in uh, in circumstances where you can get lost and confused. Guard against them from those states arising. When they do arise, the second aspect is when an unwholesome state arises, an unhealthy, unwholesome state arises, learn how to overcome them. And we've been doing that a lot here. Like when fear or uh, wanting or uh, whatever arises, we've been practicing rain learning how to hold it and be present with it, self-compassion, all the various tools that we've been exploring how to work with these difficult mind states. So that's the unwholesome. Then he has two that have to do with the wholesome. He says, cultivate wholesome states that aren't here, which we're doing, mindfulness is the most profound wholesome state to cultivate. We'll get to that in a little while. Or cultivating loving kindness like we've done each afternoon or cultivating generosity. All of those qualities can be cultivated. And he says, that's the third. And then the fourth of this wise effort, he says, when a wholesome state is here, he suggests to maintain and increase that wholesome state is a good thing. This is good. When you're feeling true well-being, he suggests maintaining and increasing it. Now you might think, well, hold on a moment. Isn't that attachment? How many people thought that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, very good. Good thinking. You want to be critical as you explore this. That's what the Buddha said. Here's the the trick. If you have a wholesome state and you say, I want more, or how do I keep this here? As soon as you've done that, you've turned it into an unwholesome state. Because if you're grasping at the pleasant, that's a contraction. So that's not the way to maintain and increase a wholesome state. Rather, to simply be 
present for it. Because when you're here, when you don't miss it, you actually give it more airplay. And he gives this example in this one discourse. This is in uh, for the scholars or scholastic among you, if you go to uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 99, he says, he gives the example, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, think to yourself, I'm being generous now. He recommends this. He says, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He is not saying, check it out, you know. (laughs) You notice, I'm a pretty generous guy. (laughs) Pretty generous in here. No, no, no. That just reifies the sense of self. But he says, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through you. Oh, it feels so good. And when you pay attention to that, when you really tune into how good it feels, it's delightful. That's the best way to maintain and increase that wholesome state. So this is the first one, that to, it's good to cultivate wholesome states and to even let them develop and strengthen. The second of these principles that really struck me mm, In that same discourse, he says, there is a gladness that's connected with the wholesome state. There's a feeling of uplift that you experience. In fact, just before I go on with more words, close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind something that brings you joy. And remember the last time that you experienced it. And as you remember, just notice how good it feels inside. Or What's the experience of feeling good? How does it feel in your body and in your mind and in your heart? Just explore the landscape. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. A um, couple of comments. Maybe what brought you joy and, and even more, how does it feel inside? Very, very uh, succinct. Yeah, Sandra. Yeah, um, I was watching this hummingbird on my mm. every day. Yes. Warmth in your heart. Mm-hmm. This uh, feeling of warmth in my heart. Yes, beautiful. Yes, Carly. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get to both of you. Go ahead. I, I have a most adorable little nephew. He's six years old. Uh-huh. And I was imagining the last time I saw him, he was sitting on a chair. He can't wait. How does it feel? How does it feel? So full. Your heart just feels so full playing with your, your nephew. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yes. I like the little presents that you get. Say it loud. I like the little presents that you get. Yeah. Um, I like the little presents that you get. Yeah. Um, I like the little presents that you get. Yeah. Um, I like the little presents that you get. Yeah. Um, I like the little presents
How does it feel inside? Warms your heart. Three warm heart. Was this you? Was this you? No. <laughs> Who was this? Who was that? <laughs> Where? And that was so sweet. Yeah. So one one last one. Yeah, uh, Trisha. A misty morning. Just going through the mist and looking back at, at it all. Mind you. Overwhelming beauty. And how did it feel inside? Hard to hold. Yes. Yes. All of one thing about all of these states, just like the the states of suffering are states of contraction, the states kusala, the wholesome states, are all states of expansion. You can feel it: love, kindness, generosity, compassion. The heart feels warm, feels big, feels aligned. Those are states of expansion. So that those. Examples, and we all have our own. There's no, there's so many different ways to feel good, to feel that gladness. The Buddha said in this discourse that gladness connected with what is wholesome. I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. You know, you're having a bummer of a day, and somebody just does something sweet for you and in a moment or you see a hummingbird and get touched and in a moment you can forget all your, your, your troubles kind of evaporate. Ah, that gla- an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he, sa- he says, that gladness, uh, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. One gladdens the heart. So, the key is to notice that gladness. You might know, hmm, feeling pretty good right now. Okay, what's the next thing we have to do? But here's the trick. If you turn your awareness to it and know, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. That extra little step makes all the difference in the world between, yep, feeling pretty good right now, okay, and, mmm, oh, this is what it feels like. to f- Oh, it feels so good. And just taking it in. My uh, friend and, and, uh, uh, and, and colleague, Rick Hansen, who teaches here a lot, and he's a neuroscience expert, and he's written... Buddha's Brain and other books on, uh, on neuroscience. He, he's come and taught at the, uh, the Joy Course a lot. He says, 
if you can stay with that moment of well-being where your heart is touched, he recommends staying with it for 15 seconds if you can. And you don't have to make a big show of it. You know, you don't have to... Well, don't bother me. I'm, I'm getting in touch with my, my gladness. You know. But just... Just take a few deep breaths and turn your attention and let yourself feel it. He says, if you do that for 15 seconds and you do that six times in a day, that's his little formula. I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it. You know? <laughs> if you do that over a two-week period, you will notice a real, a significant impact on your level of happiness. Both because you're developing those neural pathways and just as important, you're starting to be on the lookout and having your radar out for the good. And it takes practice to look for the good. Most of us are wired up to look for the danger and look for what's wrong. This is not a bad thing. It keeps us alive and we have survival of, of, of the species. But there is this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that's continually scanning the horizon for what's wrong. And when you're, you're stressed, it gets that much more activated. And so it's not so easy to see what's right. So it takes practice to look for what's right and what's good. I read one study for most people when they hear a sharp, they have a sharp encounter with someone that shakes them. It takes, for most people, seven positive encounters to come back to stasis. You know, somebody saying, you jerk! Oh, you're such a nice person. Oh, you really are wonderful. You know, it takes seven times before you start to come back to yourself. So it takes practice to look for and take in the good. So this leads to the third of these Buddhist teachings that have made sense to me. And that is, we're all creatures of habit. In this one discourse, Majima Nikaya number 19, he says... Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of your mind. Can you argue with that? In neuroscience, the axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. This is how it works. The Buddha was talking about this centuries ago. We will tend to look, to find what we look for. And there's another neuroscience um, uh, uh, understanding called, maybe you're familiar with it, confirmation bias. Where whatever you believe or are looking for your brain will selectively notice. So if you're, for instance, believing or thinking that everybody around is a jerk and they're going to disappoint you, 
that's what you'll notice. Ah, see, there it is again. Another jerk, you know, another disappointment, you know. And you miss out on the times that people come through. Or how the world is going down the tubes. You've got a lot of evidence to say, oh. but you might miss out on the fact that there's more consciousness now than there's ever been. And there's more goodness now than there's ever been. And if you just look at it through that one lens, you'll be very despairing. But if you can see another way, how, for instance, really people want to be loved and want to express their, their goodness and feel safe, and you look for it, you'll find it. Not only will you find it, but you'll bring it out of them too. Or if you tune into how amazing it is to be alive, how amazingly blessed I am just to have a body and a mind and to be able to experience this precious life. That is a very different lens that you look through. So whatever you frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And what, you, what your mind sees and believes will deeply affect your heart. That's the connection between mind and heart. You will find and feel and activate what your mind believes and sees. So these are the, the three principles that have made sense to me. Cultivating wholesome states when they're here um, to maintain and increase them. Tune into the good that feeling of gladness that accompanies them, and through practice, inclining your mind in the direction of greater and greater well-being. Not to bury your head in the sand. You know, I'm, I've been teaching this stuff for a long time. I'm very well aware that the first noble truth is there's suffering in life. And this is actually one of the key steps in in opening up to genuine happiness. I'm not saying live in a, you know, in, in, in la-la land, but to not miss out on all the good in life and to cultivate it helps create a container, a bigger container for, um, for living wisely in this world. And I'll read to you, especially in this time during this, these days where it can be so easy to be despairing about things. And you might say, awakening joy. Are we just sitting around singing Kumbaya? As one, one uh, person who took the course called, said, are we just singing Kumbaya? I called it the Kumbaya effect. You know? <laughs> and no, that's not what I'm talking about. And I want to read to you from Howard Zinn, the great historian, John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, who passed away a, a few years ago, he wrote the, uh, the People's History of the United States, the, the non-whitewashed version. And he, this is what he says, a very realist, very strong realist who calls it like it is. He wrote in this es essay called The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist 
isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. If you're just going around saying, oh, we're doomed and there's no hope, you're not adding to the inspiration. Yeah, you have to feel all your pain and all your grieving and all your sadness and loss and fear and all of that, but that's only part of the deal. Then open to all the, the goodness and the blessings and do what you do from love and from commitment. We talked about it the other night. And that becomes much more inspiring. And as I said a moment ago, there has never been as much consciousness in this world. And just like the light sometimes brings out the darkness or the shadow, the shadow brings out the light in a way that we could never predict. So let go of any kind of conclusions you have about where we're heading and how it's going to turn out. Okay, so these are the three principles. Now I wanted to just uh, share with you a bit about how you can apply these and maybe you can take that uh, in into your life. First of all, to remember that you really do want to be happy. Remember that I said that the other night? If you feel, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. So just tune into the fact that you ever, there's something in you that is rooting for your well-being, as misguided as it might be. And to really access and find out where true well-being lies, this is the start of the process. Because actually, then the key first step begins, which is the intention to be happy. As the Buddha said, intention, which is the second factor in the Eightfold Path. The first is wise understanding. Where does happiness really lie? How is suffering and happiness caused? Then wise intention or wise thought that I had when I first heard the teachings and that probably each of you have had when, you, when I said to myself, I'm going for it. Remember how that was for you? There's something here I want to find out about. That's wise intention to at least face in the direction of greater consciousness. But there's 
a piece that sometimes is missing, which is the intention to really open up to happiness. You know, consciousness, okay, I can handle that. The end of suffering, okay, I can handle that. But happiness, is that okay? Can I really let myself be happy? And we often, many of us, have all kinds of ways that we sabotage ourselves. Do I deserve it? Do I, should I feel guilty? Will I upset others who aren't? Uh, whatever way, I'm not good enough to deserve that. But you really do want to be happy. So this is actually activating that place that's rooting for you and saying, yeah, I want to go for it. The, the Tibetans uh, have this saying, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. The intention to be happy is the start. And if there's a part of you that's somehow believing I don't deserve it, not to feel bad about that, but to see that's a belief that really needs attending to. Remember, everyone benefits from your happiness. And it starts, uh, what I did was take 10 different wholesome states to develop and, um, uh, and cultivate joy. And it starts with the intention, okay, I'm going for it. I wanted to share with you a, a story of somebody who went for it. This is from a book called How We Choose to Be Happy by my uh, two good friends. They become friends, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. They live here in, in the Bay Area. Um, and th- what they did, they were on a research project uh, identifying certifiably happy people <laughs> for for three years that's all they did and they travel all over uh, the states and Canada and Mexico and Europe and finding as many happy people as, as they could and they go to a town say in rural Alabama and they go to a diner and they'd say anybody happy around here you know <laughs> And people would say, Shirley, she's pretty happy. And then they go to speak to Shirley, are you happy? I'm pretty happy, yeah. And then they, they'd ask sometimes, could we speak to your relatives or coworkers just to see? And everybody would say, Shirley's really happy. <laughs> it's like this one, she's, she's pretty happy. I'd say she, she qualifies. Uh, and they, then they'd ask, well, why are you so happy? What, what, what's your secret of happiness? And they found over a three-year period, 320 of these really happy people and distilled the nine common choices that they made, um, many of which are in my 10 Steps book. Not all of them, but, but many of them. But the first one is the same, the intention to be happy. And this, I wanted to share with you Adele's story. Is you might think, oh, well, yeah, if you've got good circumstances, then you're going to be happy. But that's not what most of these stories were. This is Adele's. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. 
My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland fire in 91. Leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. Oh my God. So she goes on. I had nothing. My, I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. And I began to see there was hope among the ashes There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way, and I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. It took her a while to process all of her grief. And she talks, they write about it in the, in the book. It took her a few years. She made a promise to herself that she wasn't going to numb herself out in that process. That she was going to feel everything and go for real happiness. And they say, Rick and Greg say, she walks into a room and lights it up. You can't fake that kind of a thing. And I know, and maybe you know, people who have had really difficult things happen to them that that much more appreciate the goodness in life and can share it with others. So if you've had a a tough time, don't think, oh, this is not for me. You can be more inspired and motivated to bring out the best. It just is that decision to go for it. So before I go on, I just want to invite you for a moment to get in touch with this intention. And maybe uh, if you close your eyes and just imagine if more and more you got more skilled at seeing all the good in your life and all the good around you and that you had more and more access to that joy that's right inside of you that you were born with, like that Chloe Thomas we saw the other night. And say, in a year or two years or five years, that was the direction that more and more you were 
committed to cultivate. All your goodness shining through. Just imagine how it might feel inside and how it would be for everybody in your life who knows you. Maybe feel what it, what it might be like inside. And now, if this feels like a worthwhile project, see if you can make the heartfelt decision to do your part to bring that about. Just that you will do what you can to support that. This is where the power comes in. You deciding. Not wishing or hoping it would happen, but deciding to do your part and letting life support you. That can be the most important decision that you make. And if you had some words that come up, I'm sorry I didn't ask, you know, just to put it in a few words to really um, crystallize your intention, staying connected with it. Okay. A deeper level, and I don't have time to go, go there now, is to see your own well-being in the context of a wider intention that everybody benefits. Like we were talking about the other night from that authentic happiness comes from making a contribution to the world. So to widen your intention and see your own happiness as a, as a benefit to everyone else. Okay, so that's the intention, the first step. And we obviously won't be able to go through all the, the steps, but I just want to mention a couple more. Mm, too bad. The second step that I, I put it in a particular sequence is mindfulness, the tool of a, of a joyful life. Because as the Buddha said, mindfulness is the most direct way to overcome sorrow and lamentation and, and grief and despair and realize the highest happiness. That's what we're doing here. And it has the property of weakening all the unwholesome states and strengthening all the wholesome states. It's the one out of 52 mental factors. That's the kind of deck that we're all dealt. There are some wholesome and unwholesome and mindfulness weakens the unwholesome and strengthens the wholesome. It's the unique property of mindfulness. It's very powerful. And not only that, when you're feeling a wholesome state, when you apply mindfulness to it, it strengthens, amplifies that wholesome state. Okay? That's what we've been doing for this last, last week. And you've seen for yourself, many people have come in saying, wow, I'm feeling a little better than I did when I came here. It's just how mindfulness works. Okay, then 
to apply mindfulness to each of a number of other wholesome states of these states. And um, I'll just mention briefly and then close with, a, with one particular one. Um, states like, or the, the cultivation of integrity, that every time you're at a choice point, should I or shouldn't I click the send button on that email or let somebody have it or they deserve it. But, well, I don't know if this is going to feel so good. You know, if you've got that choice point, every time, the Buddha said this is a foundation for your inner peace. Every time you choose the high road, you know, when they go low, every time, let yourself feel good. Oh, wow, I'm going high now. Mm, the bliss of blamelessness the Buddha talks of. You know, there, there's a lot to say about each of these, but I'll just kind of touch on them. Um, the joy of uh, learning to be kind and loving ourselves. So key, and we've spent time on this. And you, I think it's been beautiful to see how many people have said, wow, I'm really getting how important and powerful it is to just be a bit kinder with myself. Keep doing that. That's where that intention really opens the heart. The connection with others, feeling the connection, feeling the delight in the happiness of others, expressing your caring and compassion is a very powerful source of well-being. The joy of letting go, every, and we talked about that the other day, just letting go. Oh, it feels so good to lighten the load. Looking and opening up to the difficult. This is a direct path to joy. This is not just a, a feel-good program. It's a feel-everything program. You know? And... You've seen for yourself the power of opening up to the difficult instead of running away from it. The Buddha has this one teaching. He says um, that suffering can be the causative factor for faith to arise. And faith can lead to gladness, can lead to joy, can lead to happiness and contentment and peace and the highest stages of freedom. You might say, how is that possible that suffering can lead to faith and joy? Let me ask you, how many people here have been motivated by suffering in their life to look for answers that have led them to a deeper dharma? Look at that. That's how it works. So not to think, oh, if I were running the universe, I'd do a much better job than this. This shouldn't be... We learn from our difficulties and we find courage and we find capacity and, and uh, wisdom and love. So looking at and learning how to process the difficult, this is, these are all very, very key components of awakening joy. And joy, when I th think about joy, you know, I say, what is joy? You know, it's 
for me is just being authentically where you are and feeling a connection with it, an honest connection. And there's an aliveness that comes from that. And the more you can learn to open up to it all, the more that aliveness moves through you. Okay, so the last one that I want to mention is the quality, the state of gratitude, which is a direct path to opening the heart. We are so blessed. The Buddha has in the discourse on blessings, he says, to be content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. And in that sequence, I put gratitude third because as you open up your, your heart, as you say thank you, as one, one teacher says that gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish and you can receive all the goodness. If, if you're busy grumbling and complaining, no, this is wrong and that's wrong and too bad about that, there's no way for the goodness to come in. But when you say oh, thank you, then you can receive and feel all of the blessings in life. And that gives you a bigger container to hold all the the hard stuff. So gratitude is key and can be cultivated. And I wanted to share with you, uh, I'll close with a story that um, is, is very near and dear to me about gratitude and the possibility of change. Uh, And first, before we do, just think, we all have something going on in our life that's pretty good. If we can come here and spend a week just cultivating mindfulness and have the circumstances and the opportunity and the inclination to do it, Whatever suffering you have going on in your life, you've got a lot of good not to miss it. And that gratitude kind of completes the circuit with life. So I'll share with you, um, the, for me, the, the most meaningful story in teaching this stuff, uh, which I've been doing for, for, for a number of years now. And that's the story of my mom, Uh, who passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 94, uh, Selma Barras. Any people have seen my mom? A few people, okay. My mom is a YouTube star. (laughs) My mom uh, has, uh, I think it's up to 480,000 views. If you go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, How My Son Ruined My Life... You'll see, you'll see my mom, okay? And what happened was, uh, as I was writing the book, this book, I went down and visited my mom, who lived in L.A., uh, right near my sister. My sister and my mom are very close, and I live up here in Berkeley. And I, um, uh, my sister was gone for a few weeks, and we, we all agreed I'd visit my mom for a week. And we had a, a really good relationship um, by that time in our lives. It took a little while to get there, but uh, it was really good towards 
towards the end, towards the later years. And uh, I had all this research on gratitude. I, I had a, a, a magazine full of research on gratitude. Uh, and it's very impressive. And my mom, uh, one thing she says in the video, um, my mom uh, was um, a, a Jewish mother who's, who has certain genes. Jewish mothers are born to complain. Right? And it's called kvetching in Yiddish. And my mom would find something to complain about no matter what, often. She says this in the YouTube herself, so I'm not bad-mouthing her. This, uh, now she's become this great gratitude teacher. And I, so here I was writing about gratitude, and I said, and I had all this research, and I said, hey, check this out, Mom. Um, it improves your immune system. It, uh, it, it benefits your relationships. You take better care of yourself. Just on and on and on, pages of, of research. And I said, what do you think? And she said, that's very impressive. And then I said, hey, Mom, wouldn't it be good to try a gratitude practice? She rolled her eyes and said, look, James, I know that my life is blessed. I do. But I've been seeing the glass half empty for a long time. And I don't think I'm about to change now. And then I said, well, let me ask your mom. Something just came over me. And I said, if you could change, would you change? I was just curious. If you could change, would you change? She said, if I could, I would. But, it, but don't hold your breath, right? So I said, and we were, uh, we were playing Scrabble. She was a great Scrabble player. We, used to, uh, we played all the time. And I said, um, and so she liked to play games. And I said, how about if we play a game? What kind of game? I said, well, you know, you, you say that your life is blessed. Um, and it's all the way you say it. Like you could say, um, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey right? California. Uh, it's so, I know my life is so blessed, is very blessed, but it's so cold here today. Or you could say, it's cold here, it's cold today, and I know my life is blessed. I said, do you see the difference? She said, oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I do see the difference. And I said, well then how about every time you complain, I'll just remind you she said, what do you mean? I said, well, suppose you say, oh, the TV reception is so lousy. And I say, and? And you say, oh, yeah, and my life is very blessed. And she said, as she, she had that a good spirit, she said, okay, let's play it. We had the most amazing week as the complaints rolled off her tongue <laughs> one after another and I wanted to be very mindful, you know, you know, oh, darn it, this is a little too salty. And, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And we laughed the whole week. We did. 
And she started to see just how incessant this was. And we kept it up. When I got back home, I called her a lot in those last, those next two weeks, those next few weeks. Hi, mom, how you doing? And, yeah, yeah. And a friend of hers also was in on the joke when uh, the game when, when, when uh, back in LA. My, and amazingly, it stuck. My sister, who, when she came back, my sister had a lot of the same tendencies as my mom. And one of her first comments was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she wasn't so thrilled. It, it took her a while. She, after a while, appreciated it. But it stuck for the last five years of her life. From 89 to 94, when she passed away, every conversation was about how blessed she was. She still complained plenty, but she'd always have that in there. And she wrote, what I put in the book, she wrote a poem. In our family, we always uh, would write poems for our birthdays to um, celebrate birthdays. It was the family tradition. And she wrote me this poem. It was seven months later. It was my birthday. And she wrote this that I included in the, in the book. And you should really check out the YouTube because she's, as much of a complainer, she's very funny. She was always, always had a great sense of humor. So this is what she wrote to me. And during this time, she was losing her eyesight to uh, macular degeneration. There's a reference to it in the poem. She says, 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I'm blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I have ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anyone can change. It's true. Don't sell yourself short. This happened all the way, right to the very end. She, she had cancer. She died of cancer. And, but she was so grateful she didn't have pain that last year. But the last six months, she was in her bed. And um, she couldn't get out of bed, really. Her, she couldn't read because her eyes were gone, um, which was her passion. She couldn't hear unless she had her hearing aids turned up all the way. We played a lot of music and iPods those last few months. Um, So it wasn't really a very pleasant situation. And she just kept on talking about how blessed she was. A few weeks before the end, I I was visiting her. I did a lot of visiting those last, uh, that last year. And uh, I went into a room in the morning, one morning, and she looked in deep contemplation 
And then she opened her eyes and saw I was there. And I said, wow, mom, what were you thinking? You looked so deep. And she said, actually, my mind was devoid of all thoughts except thank you, God, thank you, God. And I said, wow, mom, can I quote you on that? And she said, will I get a commission? (laughs) She she always had a sense of humor. And then at the very end, I I said, hey, do you want me to read any words at your memorial service? Because she was ready to go. And she said, oh, yeah, good idea. And then, and she dictated, and I read at her memorial her words. She said, I don't know what I did to deserve the life I I had. It's been such an incredible run. I've been so very, very blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a small word, and it means everything. I wish you good health, good politics, and happy lives. (laughs) She was a rabid Rachel Maddow fan. (laughs) So... It's possible. It's all about deciding and then practicing. And this is where the connection between the mind and the heart is. That your mind can decide what to create. The mind is the forerunner of all things. Another um, interpretation, translation of that first line of the Dhammapada. The mind is the forerunner of all things, or we are what we think with our thoughts we make the world, another translation. And from the mind, we can decide to open our hearts. And when we open our hearts, not only do we benefit, but everybody in the world benefits. So I hope you see all the goodness inside you and share it with the world. It's a good way to spend your life. So let's take a few moments. Thank you for your attention. It's a lot of words, but you hung in there with me. Thank you. And uh, yeah, once again, we'll we'll take about twenty twenty minutes or so for um, for the walking period. Go get some fresh air.